And now this afternoon, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. We'll read a section of the chapter beginning with verse 25. Well, actually, I want to back up to get a better sense of the context. Let's begin at verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them, that is, Paul and Silas. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Ira Sankey once told the story how he was on guard duty one night as a soldier in the Union Army during the Civil War. It was a quiet night, 
Not a lot of action, nothing happening, at least not late at night, and therefore his watch was a rather tedious thing to have to do. Nothing really but to man his post in the darkness. Unknown to Sankey at that time, there was a Confederate soldier close enough to line up Sankey in the sights of his rifle. But before he could shoot, Sankey began to sing a gospel hymn. The effect of that hymn on the heart of the Confederate soldier was such that he could not pull the trigger, but instead listened to Sankey for a time, and then disappeared into the darkness, having never pulled the trigger. He would later share that incident with Sankey while attending a D.L. Moody evangelistic campaign, and Sankey would then know of the powerful effect his hymn had had on a man and how the singing of that hymn had saved his life. Tradition has it that the Reformation in the city of Heidelberg began with the singing of a hymn. On a Sunday near Christmas in the year 1545, the Holy Spirit Church was filled close to capacity. As the priest solemnly prepared for the Mass, a voice from the back of the church broke the silence. As the congregation listened, they realized that the strong, youthful voice was singing a well-known hymn of the Reformation. Perhaps a mighty fortress is our God. The priest stopped, and there was complete silence. But then the entire congregation started to sing the hymn also. The priest quickly exited the church as the Reformation entered the hearts of the Christians of Heidelberg. Well, in the passage we've read just now, we discover the power of singing praises to God. There was as much a great shaking in the hearts of many as there was a great shaking that shook the foundations of that prison and opened the doors and loosened the bands of those that were within. And I think it would be fair to say that Paul and Silas were certainly singing a new song. We read in verse 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You could say there's a sense in which they were fulfilling what's described in Psalm 40. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. We read in verse 3 of that psalm. And isn't that exactly what happened in Acts 16 and verse 25? Paul and Silas are singing praises to the Lord, and before they're done, hearts would be open, most notably the heart of that Philippian jailer who had so abused them when he cast them into prison. Now, in the case of Paul, you could argue that this song was new in the sense that his circumstances were certainly new. The one who earlier had Christians committed to prison was now himself cast into a dungeon and made fast in the stocks. You could say that his song was new in the sense that his whole outlook on life had become new. 
the one who had labored so intensely to stamp out Christianity, was now the one that was broadcasting the name of Christ like no other. And certainly this song was new in the sense that Paul's manner of expression was new. Rather than being sad or depressed or mad or outraged, the text reveals that his heart was full. So full that he must praise his Lord and Savior. And as a result, powerful things began to happen in other hearts. We could say that this new song may serve as a means to setting others free. Or it may serve to express the freedom that we have. And this is why we're commanded to sing in church, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in Ephesians 5, verse 19. And that command is given in the context of being filled with the Spirit. The cross-reference is found in Colossians 3 and verse 16, and that also speaks of the ministry we're to have to one another with the use of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another with the use of these things, that verse tells us. Whether, therefore, it serves as an expression of our joy or as a means to bring ourselves or others to that joy, I think you would agree that we can see clearly in this narrative the value of a new song. And that's what I want to focus on for just a moment or two this afternoon. The value of a new song. And this value is seen, first of all, by the way this new song transcends circumstances. The setting for what some have called these midnight hymns sung by Paul and Silas is given to us in verses 23 and 24. Look at those verses with me if you would. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, that is, they whipped them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast, uh, their feet fast in the stocks. The picture that's given to us in these verses would not really seem very conducive, would it, to having a singspiration, so to speak. We might understand loud complaints. We might understand even a lamentation. But the text says that they prayed and sang praises. The grammar in the original language indicates to us that it was while they were praying that they were singing praises. And the two things were intermingled. They were praying and at the same time singing, or it could be correct to say that the praises they were singing were also being offered to God as prayers. Hymns serve that purpose, you know. They can give us substance to our praying. And the thing that so clearly stands out as being unusual 
is that they were able to pray and sing in the midst of such cruel and unjust circumstances. Back in the early days of the Free Presbyterian Church in Northern Ireland, three of our ministers were committed to prison on account of the uproar that was created because of their protest against the downgrade of the Irish Presbyterian Church and their ecumenical ambitions in reaching out to the Church of Rome. I'll never forget what Ivan Foster once told us in a message about his prison experience. He was one of those three. At the time I heard him give this explanation, he was preaching on Joseph from the book of Genesis. Joseph was a man who was familiar with prison, the dungeon. And Ivan Foster was remarking on how incredible it was that Joseph could minister to others even while he was unjustly committed to that prison. In his prison experience, Ivan Foster noted that most of the men committed to prison were too self-centered to be concerned about anybody else. They all felt that they had problems enough of their own without worrying about other people's problems. It seems that people committed to prison have a tendency to become very taken up with feeling sorry for themselves. I can remember several years ago when I used to travel to uh, a city prison in the neighboring city of Spartanburg near to Greenville while I was a student at BJ. It was kind of an unusual situation. They let us use the courtroom for our church. What a setting for preaching the gospel before a bar of justice. And they would bring in the weekend prisoners who would come and hear us. And you would think, and I did think this at the time, I was still pretty naive back then, my thought was, boy, isn't the potential great here to bring in the harvest? So many uh, down and outs who had had run-ins with the law, boy, this ought to be ripe uh, for picking fruit off the vine, so to speak. Nothing could be further from the truth. That group in that prison were as self-righteous as anybody I'd ever met. It was someone else's fault they were in jail. There wasn't a one that would acknowledge himself to be guilty of a crime. They were angry. They were arrogant. They were unrepentant. They were self-centered. They were certainly the last group you would ever find singing praises to God from hearts filled with thanksgiving. They didn't consider themselves to be blessed. They considered themselves to be cheated. I dare say that this is the mindset that has by and large characterized men and women committed to prison. And this is what makes this such an unusual setting for Paul and Silas to pray and sing praises. Here were two men who, unlike the others, were committed to prison on account of Christ. What was their crime? Well, their crime was casting a demon out of a damsel who was possessed, and as a result, those who took advantage of that damsel were out their profits. Oh, if anybody had reason to be downcast and angry, it would have been Paul and Silas. 
After all, they had come to Philippi with the assurance that they were in God's will. They had seen a vision which confirmed to them that they were to preach the gospel in that place. And look where it landed them. Look what it brought upon them. They were whipped. They were thrust into the inner prison and their feet were made fast in the stocks. Albert Barnes in his commentary gives a vivid picture of their suffering. Let me read to you a paragraph from that commentary. Barnes writes, The word stocks denotes a machine made of two pieces of timber between which the feet of the criminals are placed and in which they are thus made secure. The account here does not imply necessarily that they were secured precisely in this way, but that they were fastened or secured by the feet, probably by cords to a beam of wood, so that they could not escape. It is supposed that the legs of the prisoners were bound to large pieces of wood, which not only encumbered them, but which often were so placed as to extend or stretch their feet to a considerable distance. In this condition, it might be necessary for them to lie on their backs And if this, as is probable, was on the cold ground after their severe scourging, their sufferings must have been very great. What an abysmal picture of suffering um, unjustly on account of the gospel. And yet, their sufferings could not suppress the songs of praise that filled their hearts and their mouths. This song of praise truly transcended their circumstances, and this is the case, or should be the case, with every child of God who is redeemed by the blood of Christ. I get concerned when I come into contact with those that profess to be Christians, and yet they seem to be dominated by their abysmal circumstances It's as if they've lost sight of the gospel altogether. In this case, Paul and Silas could sing songs of praise, and their prayers and their praise transcended their circumstances because they had learned to see beyond the things that are temporal. Our afflictions become light, Paul tells us, In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So long as we can see Christ clearly with the eye of faith, so long as we can be convinced as the apostles were convinced that Christ is truly risen from the dead, so long as we can realize that we have come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, If we know where we have come spiritually, then a new song will fill our hearts 
and be expressed by our lives and our worship. The setting for this song, then, is highly unusual. But do you know something? God is pleased to put his people in difficult circumstances in order for such new songs to stand out all the more. It is the contrast between their praises and their circumstances that showed Paul and Silas to be the servants of Christ. It's no unusual thing for the people of God, or for the world for that matter, to have a new song, so to speak, when circumstances are favorable. When you've received that promotion, or everybody is healthy, there are no crises in the home. Oh, it becomes easy to sing and give praise. But take away our comfort, and take away some of our wealth, and bring upon us circumstances of hardship and difficulty, some of which may not even be fair. Then we're faced with the challenge of maintaining a new song. Paul and Silas demonstrate to us, don't they, that it can be done. It's no wonder the text says the prisoners heard them. Or as some versions render it, the prisoners were listening to them. That song would have a profound effect on those who heard it. So let me pose the challenge to you this afternoon. Are you maintaining the new song that the Lord has put in your mouth? When your focus is on the temporal things of this world, then afflictions will become very heavy and they will seem to last a real long time. That new song is stifled because it blends in too much with the songs of the world. But if you're convinced that Christ is with you, that Christ is for you, that Christ has justified you, no matter how the world has condemned you, if you're convinced of these things and focused on these things, then that song will be seen and heard by others around you. I know many years ago when I preached through the book of Acts, I used to point out routinely that the reason the early Christians were what they were was because of the depths of their convictions concerning Christ. They were convinced that he was the Son of God. They were convinced that he died for their sins and that they were forgiven and justified. And they were convinced that he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And because they were convinced of that, they couldn't be stopped. They couldn't be shut up. You could chase them from their homes, but the new song still prevailed in their hearts. You could put them in prison, but still we find them praising God. You could chase them from one city to the next. You could stone them and leave them as dead men. Or in the case of Stephen, you could stone them and actually succeed in putting them to death. And still the song of the early Christians reflected the testimony of Stephen. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. 
And so long as Christ is the subject and the object of this new song, then the expression of that song in our lives will transcend every circumstance we face in this world. If Christ is with you and Christ is for you, then come what may, you'll find cause for praise. Such a song, you know, can only be sung by those that are redeemed. There's an interesting statement in Revelation chapter 14. However you interpret the meaning of the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, we can say this much about them for sure, they're redeemed. And we read of them in Revelation 14 and verse 3, that they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. I take that to mean that there are new songs that only the redeemed know in their experience and can sing from hearts that are sincerely filled with praise and thanksgiving. The scene in Revelation is very much like the scenes we find in the book of Acts. I remember pointing this out on numerous occasions too. What you find historically in the book of Acts, you find in uh, apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation. And so what do you find in Acts and in Revelation? You find the church flourishing, you find the world is angry, and you find the church is therefore persecuted. That's true in Acts, that's true in Revelation. And in the midst of it all, the redeemed have a song that only they know, that only they can learn and sing. And how is such a song learned? Well, it can only be learned in the light of redemption. It can only be sung by those who have experienced redemption. The new song, then, is very valuable because it transcends circumstances. I hope you have that new song in your own hearts, even praise unto our God. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, we thank thee for a new song. We thank thee for a new outlook on life. We thank thee for a new way to interpret every circumstance in life. We thank thee, O Lord, that we can know with assurance that Christ is with us and that he's for us, that he will never lose us, nor will we lose him. Oh, may that assurance fill our hearts to overflowing, and may we be found, O Lord, living lives that express such a new song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.